0: So again, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to one seventeen, Psalm 117 as we continue our study through proclaim until the whole world hears. This is our last week in this study. You can either uh, open your Bible or if you have it on your phone, open your Bible app. Or if you don't have either one of those, uh, you can, I'm sure somebody next to you will be glad to share their word with you because you will need it for this sermon today. All right, I want to begin by my introduction talking about the power of the conjunction, the power of the conjunction. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Like, wait a minute, you're taking me back to grammar school? Like, I definitely don't want to go back to grammar school and and learning all about the goodness of grammar. But let me tell you something. As Christians, we should value grammar. We should value reading and writing because God, in His infinite wisdom and sovereignty, He gave us His Word in written form. That's the way God decided to preserve His Word to us as humanity. He, He wrote it down through human authors under divine inspiration to give us the Word. So the way that we are able to know who God is, the way that we are able to experience God and to talk with God and have Him specifically talk back to us is by being able to read the Word. And let me tell you something, grammar is important for meaning. Grammar is important for understanding Meaning. And so when we talk about the power of a conjunction this morning, you need to understand that it is important to be able to understand what conjunctions are in the biblical text so that we can make sure that we are interpreting the Scriptures the way that God intended through the power of His Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you're saying. You're like, Jeremy, grammar, come on. You're going to do a sermon about grammar? No, we're just going to use grammar, okay? Uh, I'm finishing up my Ph.D. in December, God willing, and... uh Katie told me that she's going to buy me because I'm a huge grammar fan. I love grammar. So Katie told me she's going to buy me this coffee mug one day when I finish. And the coffee mug says this, I'm silently correcting your grammar. That's how much I love grammar. But I found a new mug this week. Katie, are you in here listening? Good. I found a new mug this week that I would also accept uh, for as a as a, a gift. And it says this, I'm not silently correcting your grammar. I just need more coffee and then I'll explain how you need to fix it. Uh, But grammar is very important. So the power of the conjunction. A conjunction is a word that we use to conjoin two clauses or sentences together, right? And a conjunction can either be positive or negative. So let me give you a conjunction in a negative setting, all right? So if you're taking notes, this is very important. Never use a conjunction in an apology. Never use a conjunction in in an apology so if you're a child in here or a husband or a wife or just a church member listen don't use a conjunction in your apology because it negates. it's a negative of everything that you just said so let me give you an example and, and let me tell you something when i use the word never i rarely try to use the word never but in this situation it really means never you shouldn't go up to somebody and be like hey i'm sorry i got mad at you but you see what i did what did you just? What, in your mind, what am I about to do? I'm about to shift the blame from my apology of what I did wrong to what you did wrong. I'm sorry I got mad at you, but next time, don't use bad grammar until I've had my coffee. And some of you got that because you were listening to the joke earlier. Good. So don't ever use a negative conjunction. In an apology. But there is also the positive power of a conjunction. Words like if, and, or, but, so, for. Because they connect a clause to something else. And I'm going to tell you, the Bible is filled with positive conjunctions. Filled with them. I want to give you three before we start our sermon this morning, all right? Three positive conjunctions from Scripture and I've been told that I read Scripture really, really fast because I just love to absorb the Word of God, and so I speak really quickly when I read it. So what I did to help you out this morning is I put them on the screen so you can follow along as well. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We see the power of the conjunction in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And let me tell you something about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was messed up. Like, you don't even know how messed up the church can get. Just read 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you will get a glimpse of the, how messed up and how powerful God's redeeming work is. And so in 1st Corinthians chapter 6, Paul under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words to the church. He says, "Do not be deceived, church, neither these the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." First conjunction, and such were some of you. What a sermon. He just turned around and starts pointing his fingers. Hey, this is who you are. You're that swindler. You're that greedy. You're that adulterer. You're You're the one who practiced these immoral acts. And such were some of you. But are you ready for the power of the positive conjunction? You're not ready. Are you ready? Look what he says next. But... But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That is a powerful conjunction, is it not? He turns to him and says, this is who you used to be. This is what your identity used to be, and this is the sinful nature that you used to live and act out, but God did something about it for you. And God gave you a new identity in Jesus. And God gave you a redeemed life in Christ, and He's given you the power of His Spirit to live that faith out for the glory of the one who called you out of the darkness into the light. Amen? That's a powerful conjunction. Do you agree? Let me show you another one. Ephesians chapter two. Paul says, and you, let me just, He's going back at it. Here's Paul again, pointing out the the sins of the Ephesians church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's some pretty gloomy news, is it not? It's like when the, uh, the guy, the weatherman here in uh, Brenham says, hey, There's not a chance for rain. It's just going to be hot. It's that bad. But look at verse 4. But God. You see the powerful conjunction? But God. What did God do for this problem of humanity? Every single person on the planet. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Amen. While you are still dead and in your sins, but God did something about it. Is that not a powerful conjunction? One more, just for fun, and it kind of goes along with our sermon uh, today in Psalm 117. Jesus, after he resurrected from the grave, he was with his 11 disciples at the time, and right before he ascended, floated away into heaven, the disciples run up to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to reestablish your kingdom? Is now the time that you are going to overthrow Rome, set yourself on the throne, and everything's going to be all good? And Jesus turns to them and he says these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It is not for you. To know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. He says, don't worry about that stuff. Put all your end of times maps away. Don't worry about all that. And here's the powerful conjunction. But you. What are you going to do? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, don't worry about all that stuff when I'm coming back, when I'm going to establish my throne. He says, here's what I've got a task for you to do. I've got a task for you and the power of my Holy Spirit to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what I have for you to do. Don't worry about that, but do this, disciples. Right? Now, Psalm 117 shows us the magnitude of our commission, the magnitude of Jesus' mission in pushing us out into the nations, into the world and the power of the Spirit with the truth and banner of the gospel in hand to a dying, lost, and broken world. Let's read Psalm 117 together. You don't have to read it out loud, but just read it with me. And let's see if you can see the power of the conjunction here. Verse 1. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Here's the powerful conjunction. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Did you see it? Where does their praise what is their praises connected to? Maybe I should rephrase that question. I just corrected my own grammar. Who are their praisers, praises connected to? God, that for there, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Why? What's the connection? What's the conjunction? For great is the Lord. That's where their praises are rested in and he is the object of their praise. That's the power of a conjunction. Y'all don't have to worry about the little children crying. It's totally fine. I have five at home. I can do this with a whole audience of children, okay? (laughs) Here's what I want you to take away today. I want you to take, if you don't take anything else away from my sermon, I want you to take this one thing away from today. Our proclaiming, our ability, our ability to proclaim Christ comes out of our praises for Jesus. Our ability to proclaim Jesus comes out of our praise of Him. Praise leads to proclamation. Now, a couple things we have to infer from this text, starting in verse 1. In verse 1, we read the, the psalmist, who we don't know who it is or what time it was written, but we see the psalmist say these words, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples. That word extol there, it actually means to praise more enthusiastically. So the psalmist is like, Praise the Lord, all nations. Oh, by the way, take that praise and let's raise it a few more notches and let's praise Him that way, all peoples. You see it? So he's talking about praising God for who he is in verse 2. And so we can infer from the words nations and from the words peoples here. Nope, go back. What we can infer from the words nations and peoples is that this inference. The gospel is for every person on the planet. The gospel is for every person on The planet, that the gospel is for every person to praise and worship Jesus because we were created to worship. We were created to worship. Now, when we sinned, our worship got thrown off, and so we began to worship the creation instead of the Creator. But the gospel points our worship back to true north. And we need to understand that the gospel is for all people, every person on the planet. I think Psalm 117 is is visualized and and illustrated to us in John's Revelation on the island of Patmos, where we get the book Revelation from. And in Revelation, John sees this amazing vision. He sees people from every tribe, from all nations, from all languages, from all peoples. And what are they doing in his sight? Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 7. They are crying out. Dressed in white robe with palm branches in their hands saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what do you see him doing? Praising. Gospel is for everybody so that everyone will praise Jesus. But this psalm is also a psalm that says we must go and proclaim the good news of Jesus because it says, praise the Lord, all nations. And then it says, extol him, all people. So in the original language, do you know what all means? All. It's that simple. You're all Hebrew scholars today. All means all. Extol Him and praise Him, all peoples and nations. And so the idea here is that the psalmist says the only way that Revelation 7 becomes a reality is when God's people who have placed their faith in Him, what we would call the church, Our plan, our mission, the great commission was given to us to go and spread the good news so that all people will be registered and praising Jesus in heaven. But Paul, in a fantastic logical argument, in Romans chapter 10, he asked these series of rhetorical questions that I will answer for you to say, well, how does this happen? And Paul's going to argue it happens when God's people who are called by his name go. Go. Paul says this in Romans 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? So how can they believe if they've, how can they call on him if they don't believe in him? The answer is, they won't. Rhetorical question. And how are they to believe in Him who have they never heard? So how are they going to believe if they don't hear about Jesus? The answer is, they won't. Then Paul says, "And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, the answer is they won't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the answer is, they won't. And then Paul, in a very beautiful word picture, in a very beautiful word picture of Romans chapter 10, Paul says, using the prophet Isaiah, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. So my task this morning is to get you to praise God in such a way that you will start to have beautiful feet and take the good news out of this place and proclaim it. But here's my problem. My concern, maybe. I think many people in this room, we would all say, yeah, the gospel is for every person on the planet. Like, theologically in our minds, we go, yeah, that's true. But I have three concerns for our churches today in light of this news. Number one, I think in some sense, I think some people in our churches just don't care. Some people are we don't care. Uh, Yeah, we know the gospel is for everyone, but it's not my business. I'm not going to share the good news. I'm not going to go. I just I don't care. So it's like theologically we believe something. The gospel is very personal on the planet. Yes, but pragmatically and methodologically we do nothing about it. And in fact, I would argue that churches that are dying are churches that have lost the focus of going to the nations. That's our call. And that's how God multiplies his church. You see, James would actually talk about this in his letter. He would say, work, faith without works is what kind of faith? Dead faith. So if we really believe that the gospel is for every person on the planet, then what should that stir within us to do? Have beautiful feet. And go to the nations with the good news. So some, so some of us, I think we just don't care. That's why we don't, we don't proclaim. Number two. Number two. Somebody, some people in here probably think, well, that's just for other people to do. Right? That's for people who are called to missionaries. That's for people who are pastors, right? That's, that's for the mature believers. Well, they're the ones that are actually supposed to do the proclaiming, not me, in my little world. That's for somebody else. That's my other concern. That's another concern I have that we have in our churches today. It's for somebody else to do. When I read Matthew's gospel at the very end, when Jesus comes to his disciples and he gives them the Great Commission, and he tells them in Matthew 28, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think think most of us, we go, yeah, that sounds good. But that was for the disciples, not for us. Well, let me tell you something. That command is for all disciples on the planet at all times. So when Jesus gives that command to the eleven, he's also giving that command to... Us, you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are called to proclaim him. Period. That's it. So this is not for just the select few. This is not for the Navy SEALs of Christianity. This is just for regular people who call themselves a Christian. Amen? Number three. And I think this is the most difficult reason why people don't proclaim to the nations. It's this. Sometimes I think we just don't think God's worthy for it. I just don't think we value God enough to talk about Him. You talk about things you value, don't you? You talk about things you love, don't you? If you love a sports team, guess what you're going to do? You're going to let everybody know you love and care about that sports team. If you love a certain college, guess what you're going to do? You're going to love and tell everybody about that college. If you love a certain person, like if you're in a relationship, or if you've got a new boyfriend or girlfriend, as a young person, if you're married... No. If you have any questions about this sermon, you may email me at kyle at Brenham, ccbrenham.org. It's one of the other pastors on staff. We value what we value. We talk about what we care about is what we share about, and what you proclaim is what you praise. And I think deep down in us, the reason that we don't proclaim Jesus is because we really don't think he's worthy of our praises. I think there's other things in our hearts and in our lives that are pulling for the attention and pulling our attention away from King Jesus who saved us from our sin. And because we don't praise him and we don't think he's worthy and valuable, then we don't share him with others. And that is my biggest concern. I think we as churches have made so, God so little and insignificant and almost invaluable that when people come in, they get their Jesus fix, and then they walk out and they're like, well, that was fun, but i got other things that are going to press on my time. i got other things that are more valuable and more important to do in my week other than praising Jesus and proclaiming Him. And so it is this third concern that I really think this psalm speaks to specifically. This psalm speaks to the reason why we praise Jesus. And in that praise of Jesus, because we see the magnitude and the magnificence and the beauty of who he is and what he's done. It should stir within us a heart that says, not only am I going to praise him, but out of my love, out of my praise, it's going to flow through me. And I got to tell everybody else about it. You talk about what you value. I'll say it this way. When praise in your life is ultimate, the great commission becomes urgent. When the praise of Jesus in your life is ultimate, the great commission becomes urgent. So we look at two attributes here in this text in verse 2. Go ahead Mr. Ronnie, you're clear. Yes. At the bottom here we have this con- conjunction for. For what? For great is His steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Do you see where His praise is attached to? The praise is not attached to praise Him all nations. The praise is attached specifically to God and specifically to who God is and what He's done. It's attached to His love and it's attached to His faithfulness. And then I love what the psalmist does at the very end of this verse because I think he's thinking for great is the steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of God endures forever. Like he can't help but end the psalm with these three words. Praise the Lord. Because he's seeing and he's reflecting upon the the majesty and the the beauty of God's faithfulness and God's love. And he's like, all I can say at the end of this psalm is praise the Lord, period. Moving on, Psalm 118. Because his praise, the object of his praise is God himself. Now, I want to talk real quick about an attribute. An attribute is something that God has revealed about Himself to us in Scripture. So we understand that God has an attribute of love and holiness and justice and beauty and goodness. And so these are all the ways that we can look at how God has revealed us, but these do not make God. So God is not equal with love. The best way to think about this is that love just naturally flows out of God. All right? It's an attribute of who He is because His love is infinite, and so his love just naturally flows out of him to his creation and to others. You just can't help it. It's just, it's just a reality of who he is. And so it's an, you have to understand that, that attributes are beyond our comprehension because they reflect an infinite God, but at the same time, we see how much God loves us in his work. And so it's very difficult, right? It's very difficult to define love, isn't it? Like, somebody might say, well, I love Aggie football. Somebody say, "Well, I love pizza." Somebody say, "Well, I love my wife." Do I love Aggie football and pizza the same way I love my wife? Hopefully, somebody should have said no there. If not, we have counseling available after service. We don't love pizza the same way we love our wife. So, defining that word "love" is very, very complicated to do because we we're so used to using it in a in a variety of ways. So I would say this, if I would love to watch Aggie football while eating pizza with my wife, I just elevated love to a whole new level. Amen? So what we have to do when we come to an understanding of love, we have to understand how God shows us His love. So the best way for me to define God's love is just to show you how much He loves you. Period? Good? So let's do that. Let's look through the scriptures and let's just see... How much God loved us so we can get a, a glimmer. No, wait, go back, go back too fast. So we can get a glimmer at how great His steadfast love is towards who? Us. Alright, so number one, we're going to talk about the goodness of love, God's love. God's love is steadfast towards all people. That's the first thing we're going to see about God's love. So let me show you a couple of ways that God shows the infinite, the, a small glimmer of his infinite love towards us in Scripture. Are you ready? Here we go. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul writes this that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves you. He loves you so much that even though in your sin, God still sent his son to die for you. That's, that's his love on display. Number two, look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that that means pictured, seen among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's how much God loves you. God loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you so that you could live. Because your sin makes you dead, Christ makes you alive. That's how much God loves you. Here's another one. John 3:16, which many of us probably remember growing up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how much God loves you. That he didn't want you to perish, so he sent his son to give you eternal life through his son. Jesus affirms this in his own ministry, John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's how much God loves you. God loves you so much that he saw your rebellion. He saw your sin. He saw your brokenness. And he said, I'm going to send Jesus to do something about it. And then I'm going to restore and redeem them in the love of my son. Listen. God will love you more than anybody else in this planet. That's how much he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. He loves you so much that he took your sin and he put it on the sinless son to pay the debt and to remain holy and justified. And then he gives his son Jesus to you as a gift to be received by faith and to have your life completely changed. Listen, I don't know how you came in here this morning. Maybe some of you you're coming in here with just some some serious brokenness or or pain or or hurting. Maybe maybe you got a call this week that that maybe you, that you weren't expecting from a doctor that says you're really really sick and you just got this information thrown on you and you're like I'm just coming to church because I'm looking for some comfort. Maybe you're in here and your your marriage or your relationship is struggling. Maybe you have a rebellious or wayward child. And you're, and you're being crushed right now by the, the weight of the broken relationships of sin that has, has crept its way into your life. Or maybe you're just so busy and you have so much going on right now that you just feel like you can't get, get, can't get enough done of your day. I want you to know that no matter what you are going through today, no matter what you're experiencing today, there is a God in heaven who loves you and he says, I want to comfort and care for you and walk with you through your life's journey. But not only just through this life's journey, I want to give you an eternal life to journey with me forever and ever. And I've done that through you for you through my son, Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example, if I may, about what this looks like. And I've already asked permission from Adeline to give you this example. I've already paid her in full. I took her to Bluebell and gave her a big Bluebell ice cream to use this example for you. And I asked her permission, like I said, so she knows it's coming. But let me show you what an imperfect view of what the Father's love can do for you in the moments where you feel like... You're most defeated. A couple of years ago, I was a pastor in South Carolina, and I was at a church, a revitalization church, and it was a, it was a church that just they didn't have a lot of resources, and they, um, they had really lost focus on the Great Commission, and so they didn't pay me a whole lot. But I just felt like the Lord was leading me there to help them, and so in that, uh, I had to send. Unfortunately, we had to send Katie back to work. that That is a totally different sermon for another day. It was awful. Awful sending Katie back to her. She was working for an accounting firm out there. She was working insane hours in the accounting firm out there. So I was like dad of four, sometimes by myself. So one Saturday morning, she had to go in to work. And so I was like, well, I'm going to take four of our children. We didn't have number five at the time, but I was there. i going to take four of our children. One was in a stroller, Lincoln, and then the other three. And we're going to take them to a good news extravaganza. So I was a part of the good news program where we went into schools after, after school and taught the gospel to children that signed up for the program. And every year they would have this big elaborate event at a kind of a warehouse in Greenville, South Carolina. And so we walked into this event, and I mean, this place was packed. There was people everywhere. There was bounce houses, snow cones, popcorn, like you name it, it was there. There was like all kinds of crazy stuff, and then it was just filled with people. So I looked at the big three, and I said, Hey, big three, stay close, because you will get lost in this place. And so luckily Lincoln was in the stroller, and I just kept him snapped in the whole time. And so we're walking around about halfway through the extravaganza. Uh, I come up to one of my pastor's friends and his wife, and I start to talk. Well, if you're, a, if you're a parent of a large family, you do a lot of head counts. It's like the military all over again. You just head count every about 30 seconds. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So I got up to my friend, and I pulled up the stroller, and I looked, and I counted one, two, three. I said, uh-oh, that is not the amount of children that I came in with. My friend saw the panic on my face. Have you ever, like, accidentally lost a child? It... <laughs> Let's not, uh, we probably shouldn't put this online. They're going to come. Uh, so, like, my heart sank in that moment. And it was my Adeline. She was gone. So he, tell, he can tell I'm starting to freak out. I'm like, hey, just watch my three kids. I've got to go find my Adeline. So I run back, kind of looking back through where we, where we had just come from, and she is nowhere to be found. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have to go on the run because my wife is not going to be happy when I show up with three children. So I find my friend Lori, and I run up to Lori, and I say, Lori, I, I'm missing my AK. I'm missing my AK. Can you help me find her? She's like, yeah, Jeremy, hold on. So Lori gets on her walkie-talkie, and she says, hey, we're looking for an Adeline Kate Bell. And on the other end of that speaker... Man, my heart just lifted with love and grace. And it says, we have her. She's in the lost and found. (laughs) I don't care where she was. I'm just glad you found her. More found than lost, right? And I remember walking over to get her with Lori. And as soon as her eyes met mine, those big, beautiful, hazel eyes began to fill with tears. And she runs to her dad and leaps into her arm, my arms and I just give her this big old hug. And you know what I feel her body do? <sighs> Relax. Relax. Why? Because she felt the loving embrace of her daddy in her greatest moment of life. And she found comfort. Listen, you and me, we're adalent. We're lost. Broken. And there is a God in heaven who is a gracious and good father. And he is running to the lost and found to grab you and to put you into his intimate, loving embrace. And he says, no matter what you're going through, I'm there for you. I will comfort you. I will care for you. My infinite love will pour out into you in such a way that you will find peace that you've never found before in me. That is how much God loves you. And that is how much God loves me. But His love calls us to two responses from this text. Great is His steadfast love for us. Two responses from this text. Number one, we respond to God's love with obedience. We respond to God's love with obedience. Look at what Jesus teaches in in John chapter 15, verses 9-10. through He says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Attach yourself to my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Obedience is not about showing God how much you love Him. Obedience is about responding to how much God loves you. That was good right there. If you want to tweet that, that's available. It's responding to how much God loves you, not responding to how much you love God. And God says, if you love me, you obey me. That's what we tell our children every time we parent them. We say, if you love us, you obey us. Because out of your love for us, you want to obey us because you love us that much. God's saying the same thing to us today. Can you think of any command that Jesus has given to his disciples about going to the nation's? The Great Commission. Jesus says, out of your love for me, then go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples starting with your neighbors and ending with the nations. Make disciples with your, your co-workers. Make disciples of your, of your family. Make disciples of your friends. Make disciples of wherever you are. Love me in such a way that you respond to my love by going and getting others to know and hear about my love so that they too will respond to my love. We respond to God's love by obeying Him. Number two, we respond to God's love with a love for others. His great as His steadfast love towards all people, us, So one of the ways that we love and obey God is we go and tell about God's love to all peoples. And that is one of the greatest acts of love we could ever have. How unloving would it be? How unloving would it be if you saw somebody about to hurt themselves, do themselves great harm, and you did nothing about it? You'd probably go, what? That's not very much love for a person. But a love for God drives us to a love for others in such a way that we say we want to we want to lovingly go to others with the good news of Jesus so that they will not end up in eternity in hell. Because our praise for God causes us to proclaim God so that more people will join the chorus of God's praises. Charles Spurgeon, who is called the Prince of All Preachers, I love Charles Spurgeon. He said this, and I think it's a, a good depiction of how much we should love lost people. He says this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwanted, unwarned, and unprayed for. That's how much God's love causes us to respond to love others. Listen, it's easy to love others that are like you, right? Think like you. Talk like you. It's harder to love others that are different from you. But think about God's love for us. We are so different from God. He is holy. We are not. We are filled with rebellion and sin. He is not. But yet... What does his love do for for us? He comes after us. He pursues us and he brings us into his family. and He calls us his children by faith in his son. If that's what God does for us, shouldn't we respond to that love by doing it to others? Yes. Yes. And one of the greatest ways that you can love another person is by sharing your testimony with them. That's one of the greatest ways to share God's love with others. You say, this is what my life was like before I met Jesus. It was broken. It was messed up. Maybe you were here and you're like, I was just self-righteous. And I was just building my own religion. And whatever the case may be, you're like, this is the brokenness of my life. And then here's the day that I met Jesus. Here's the day that Jesus called me from my dead life into a new life in Him. And then, this is what God has... I've seen God do from that day forward in my life. Listen, let me just be made very clear, right? The Christian life is not an easy life. In fact, I would argue it's probably harder than a regular life without Christ. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, right? You feel that tension? The Christian life is not an easy life. But I will tell you this, that that life is filled with hope. That life is filled with God's love. That life is filled with peace. And that life is filled with faith that overshadows all fear. It's worth it. Yeah, it's hard. But oh, does it give you a framework for living. and makes life so much better. Just tell people your testimony. We love God. Out of We respond to God's love for others by sharing our testimony with them. Lastly, the next uh, number two here. Notice what he goes from. So that great, powerful conjunction, for great is the steadfast love towards us. And then he says, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That that idea of faithfulness is, is to help us to understand God's unchanging attributes, God's unchanging characteristics. Did you know that God doesn't change? It's impossible for God to change. Faithfulness is just who He is. When He says it, it always happens. And God is always faithful to His Word. When He told Abraham... He said, Abraham, out of you, I'm going to make you into many nations. Insert Jesus. Boom, many nations. When God told David, he said, David, I'm going to put somebody on your throne and he is never going to leave your throne. Boom, insert Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne and he, he will never depart it. When God says, I will save you through my son, if you just believe in his work on your, on your behalf, you will be saved. If God says it, he means it, he does it. God doesn't break promises. You remember that movie Hook? You remember with Robin Williams? I, I love Hook. It's one of my favorite movies out there. And you remember like the dad, Robin Williams, uh, before he became like before he figured out he was Peter Pan? I'm sorry if I just spoil alert for you, but you've had like 26 years to watch that movie, so I don't feel that bad, right? Uh, but you remember like the dad was always breaking those promises to his son? Over and over again, he's breaking those promises to his boy. God is not like that kind of dad. God is a dad that when he makes a promise, he always delivers and keeps. Because he is faithful, he is unchanging, and his faithfulness endures forever and ever. There's not a day that God wakes up and like, you know what? I think I'm kind of done with saving people through Jesus, so I'm going to save people through this means. It never happens. It's impossible for God to go against who he is, and so God remains faithful. And here's the reality. When we go to the nations, it's going to cost you a lot to go to the nations with the gospel. It'll cost me a lot to go to the nations with the gospel. It'll take time, resources. It might even cause severe suffering. It might even cost you your life. But I want to argue that Jesus is totally worth it. Because He is faithful to give you eternal life at the moment of physical death. That if you died going and doing the Great Commission, that your eyes might be closed in a physical death, but they would open into the arms of Jesus. And that is worth all eternity, don't you think? Don't you believe? So here's what faithfulness does for us as we go to the nations; it fills us with hope. It fills us with hope. In Hebrews, which we're actually going to be starting next week, we're going to be walking through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, "This we have hope. Now faith, excuse me. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have hope." That no matter where God sends us, no matter how painful, excruciating, maybe even that leads to our death, we have hope in a God who is faithful and because of our belief in Jesus, he has granted us eternal life. And so this life, no matter the amount of suffering we might deal with, this life is not even going to be in comparison to the eternal life to come. This is why Paul talks about the eternal weight of glory to come our way. That there is a greater reward and magnitude of God's presence coming your way. And so it's great to live faithful to the one who is the most faithful. Even if it costs you your life. And then, even if that means it takes you to the nations for the glory of God. And this is where the psalmist ends. I love it again. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And then he just can't help but conclude with an exclamation point. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's try that again. I don't think you saw it. Praise the Lord. Praise, Praise the Lord. Lord. So here's how I want to conclude this message today. Brothers and sisters, we've been given an opportunity. We've been given an opportunity at Center Church Britnam to be a gospel lighthouse in this community that we pray extends to the ends of the earth. That we would be a church that loves and praises Jesus so much that it causes our people to proclaim Him. And out of our praise and love for God, we want to see churches planted and multiplied. We want to see missionaries getting sent, commissioned and sent over to the nations. Not because we want the praise at Center Church, it's because we want to see the glory of God praised by all peoples. And it's our heart that we've been filled with God's love and understanding of God's faithfulness that drives and propels this church to be outward focused, not inward focused. And you can join that mission and vision today. Maybe some of you in here, you just need to say, Jeremy, it's time for me to to join a basis class and to learn about what it means to become a partner at Center Church so that we can go to the nations. Maybe for some of you, it's God continuing to open your heart to say, maybe you need to be praying about going to the nations. Is your yes even on the table? Maybe for some of you, God is calling you to go to your neighbor's. Or a coworker, There's somebody right now that God has put in your mind that needs to hear about Jesus. Out of your love for Jesus, go love them well by sharing your testimony with them this week. But some of you in this room, you just need to say yes to Jesus. You just need to know that that's how much God loves you, is that He sent His Son to die for you and that He will give you eternal life if you would just put your faith in Him and His work and just step back and watch God work. I am a living testimony of that. And you can be too. Because God is in the business of redeeming people for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And So if you're here today and you're like, Jeremy, I just need to know this Jesus that you talked about. Come get me after service. We'll set up a time and we'll talk about what that means to be a follower of Jesus. But lastly, here's what I want all believers in this room to do. So if you're a believer in good standing with your church, you have repented of your sin and trusted in the work of Jesus, then I just want us to celebrate and praise the Lord for what he's done. And one of the ways that we celebrate is we come to the Lord's table. We come and partake in communion. This bread represents the body that was broken for you. This blood of the juice represents, and this is all grape juice, this grape juice resembles the blood that was spilled on your behalf. And we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so today, come and joy in your heart for the Jesus that saved you and the God that showed His love to you in Christ. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up, and I'm going to pray. And then you you move as the Lord leads. Father, we thank You for Your Word. For its its integrity, its its accuracy, its clarity. God, we thank You for Your love and Your faithfulness. Now, Lord, in light of seeing that a little bit brighter, I pray today, through the illumination of Your Spirit, help us, Father, to be people who proclaim You out of our praise for You. So, Father, I pray that you would stir hearts and minds today, and that people would leave here praising Jesus and going and proclaiming him the rest of this week and the rest of their lives in both word and deed. Father, you move as only you can for the glory of your name and advancement of your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.